The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities that they represent. This program is intended for educational purposes. You're listening to Aap sun rahe hain Radio 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 Azim Premji University Over the last 5 episodes we've been privy to some of the lesser heard and until now undocumented stories of how India emerged not only independent from British rule but came together as a composite nation of hundreds of kingdoms and principalities. On the concluding episodes of the first season of the India project we revisit some of these stories and take stock of what happened to some of the characters we encountered. Welcome to the India project. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. The India Project with Josie Joseph and Sheetal. Episode 6, The Road to Destiny. So you've heard the last five episodes of The India Project. and like you i have as well and in many ways i am you i am in fact that question that you have in your mind with respect to a particular character who might have got your imagination or a particular moment that we brought alive through those uh, five episodes for a name i can give you a name my name is sheetal and i'm here as a personification of some of those questions as someone who's interested in that particular chapter of uh, indian history So yes the answer comes to us in the form of guess who <laughs> Josie himself is here to help us tie up some of the loose ends and perhaps point our eyes in the direction or ears in the direction of the next chapter of India's history as a republic Josie have to say master storytelling through the last 5 episodes you've kind of brought us to these you know cliff hangers through those five and i think there are plenty of questions in people's minds but i i want to start with one main question why these princely states no it just said uh, we thought that we'll pick up some of the most interesting and maybe uh, uh, quirky characters mm-hmm. fundamentally the very project started as a research long ago by my team because uh, i think uh, we haven't uh, and our public doesn't know enough about how this complex democracy came about mm. you know josie since you mentioned how difficult it was to bring this democracy together i'm beginning to wonder because you know cp was doing some great work advising uh, the ruler of travancore and there was a lot that it had going for it and yet we do know now that things didn't really work out that way did cp simply get scared that the onus or the responsibility of running travancore was a daunting one somehow that his ruler would not be up to or was he just fearful of the fate of anyone who uh, batted for that point of view uh, to be the same as what he had encountered in an attempted assassination attempt so tell us what happened there no i think the attack on him on july 25th very clearly rattled him and i think that was a turning point and it's very unfortunate right that uh, that kcs money the young militant insurgent who attacked him uh has not found enough celebratory acceptance in the annals of indian history mm. not that we are justifying violence but the fact is that 
he should be ranked alongside bhagat singh hmm. and uh, others and subhash chandra bose and others who have contributed dramatically to the cause of independence of uh, united india hmm. so i think the attack really rattled him and that's when he really shifts a gear to tell his uh, ruler that sir uh, i don't think anyone of us is safe hmm. but i know and feel that such a fight will be a fight against concentrated hatred and venom and there will be successive attempts on my life and on yours if you keep me with you if i am killed or incapacitated at the present juncture there is no one to replace me i force of all these if not for the attack despite the huge public protest that was surging outside i think cp would have pulled off an independent travancore right for a host of reasons including the fact that he was not a lone ranger he was the founder head of network of very powerful princely states which enjoyed significant patronage in london and other parts of the world right so it it wasn't that from a geostrategic point of view hmm. it was not a madman's dream hmm. it was a possibility yeah and uh, once you have absolute power then suppressing dissent etc becomes easy and we have seen it in many countries across africa and other places how or in south asia correct hmm. i mean except for india look at the rest of south asia uh once the ruler has absolute power as as a sovereign and as a uh, nation state then suppressing dissent is very easy so yeah josie so while on the subject of cp you want to dwell a little bit more because it segues into what happened in indore because at one you know point in time cp is here telling his ruler uh, not a very good idea to branch out on your own on the other hand yashwant rao holkar of indore with his own advisers is now sending out a note to cp a hindu one i beg of you with all the emphasis at my command not to turn down this very sincere offer on he's saying hey you know why don't you hop across and help me <laughs> strike out on my own um what really happened over here because uh, clearly he's reaching out to a man who had just advised his own ruler in travancore not to follow that path was uh, holkar aware of what had transpired in travancore or i'm am i presuming something here can you tell us what really transpired uh, no i mean basically uh, cp on 27th when he tells the Travancore Maharaja that we should not pursue freedom independence he also tells him in the letter that please inform our friends hmm. whatever decision is taken we must inform hyderabad and bhopal and i suspect hmm. that there was a secret communication network among travancore even mysore uh, nizam hmm. bhopal indore junagadh etc and it was a quite a organized conspiracy hmm. and cp was at the head of it hmm. and in fact uh, we we do hear uh, bopal's hamidullah calling him right. our most important advisor etc so holkar writes to cp just as he hears that travancore is giving up its independence dream hmm. and that's when he writes in that look come to me i mean i want to be independent hmm. so so and 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 holkar's move could have been a massive shock hmm. if cp had accepted correct because then cp would have been far closer to the center of action he would have had bopal next door he would have jinna would have been much closer to him and there is nizam we would have had chaos uh, of uh, of the scale that we can't imagine today uh and while you know we are on the subject of uh, people having these cloak and dagger meetings etc there was one man who we heard in your story from bhopal hamidullah who's writing to jinna 
asking, nearly pleading and begging about his uh, future in Pakistan. Tell us about what really transpired in that story a little bit more to understand why he was so desperate to ally with uh, Pakistan. If uh, alignment to one dominion, why this one and not that? Hamidullah has always been invested in the idea of Pakistan. Hmm. And that is why a uh, large part of the Bhopal royal family finally ended up in uh, Pakistan. Pakistan. Uh, but it's not just Hamidullah who is consulting Jinnah. Hmm. Uh, Nizam is also closely coordinating with Jinnah. Hmm. Uh, so is the Junagadh ruler. Hmm. Uh, uh, so does a few of the Hindu ruling families like Holkar and others. Hmm. So Jinnah was this rallying point for anyone who was not interested in being part of the dominion of India, which was determined to be a republic. Hmm. Whereas Jinnah, who, has, who had to deal with just three, four princely states, uh, was of the opinion that on 15th of August, all of you are going to be independent. Hmm. You can decide the course of action. Right. And so they felt more comfortable in Jinnah's words, hmm. as we know from the Jodhpur episode. Right. It's probably August 10th uh, when uh, Jodhpur Maharaja, who had left Delhi after agreeing to everything that Patel and Viceroy said, he returned. And on the 10th when he returns, there is uh, dramatic moments happening. The Nawab of Bhopal sends two cars to both the airfields of Delhi. He just wanted to ensure that the Maharaja is with him. Mountbatten later said that uh, probably Nawab was holding the Jodhpur ruler as a prisoner in his house. Whatever it is, the Jodhpur ruler meets Jinnah. And uh, Jinnah is famously, as you know, said to have told the Jodhpur ruler, here is my fountain pen, write your terms and I will sign it. Uh, so I think they were looking at to, up to him for uh, a political support and a certain kind of freedom that he was offering. Hmm. Uh, and if Travancore had not pulled out, we may have had a corridor of independent princely states starting from Travancore, Mysore, all the way down to Junagadh. Hmm. Stretching across the heart of India, right? Right. So, the Nawab, to, to, to answer your question, what Nawab was doing was not in isolation. Hmm. We do see people like Nizam also. Right. In fact, Nizam, before he uh, makes his announcements, he won, would often send his letters to Jinnah to approve. Right. That was the kind of close coordination they had. Mm -hmm. I must here add one more thing. Hmm. It's not that all the Muslim rulers were coordinating with Jinnah hmm. and was with Jinnah. The most interesting being Rampur, hmm. who had, who knew geographically and politically, he and his people should belong to India because it's in Uttar Pradesh. But what Muslim League does is that they unleash violence uh, in Rampur to force the Rampur Raja to change his position. Hmm. He doesn't. He ends up in Mountbatten's house seeking for help and Mountbatten rushes military to quell the protest. The protest. Mm -hmm. So, when we talk about the idea of, you know, Pakistan, India and the independent, the princely states, it's not just a Hindu-Muslim uh, division. Mm -hmm. It is a division between uh, people who are power-hungry, mm -hmm. who find uh, assurance in Jinnah, and uh, rulers who are very comfortable in the idea of uh, Republic, Republic of India. Mm -hmm. And and on both sides, we have Hindus and Muslims. Yeah. So that symbolistic narrative that has been built into our uh, textbooks and uh, many of our writings is absolutely rubbish. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Josie, I'm taking my role as the question mark on this episode very seriously. And there's this other question that begs to be asked. And I'm going to bring it in here before we get to other topics. 
this has to do with the idea of a republic. Um, why was this idea of a republic or a democracy so important to our collective psyche? Was it something like, you know, you've stood together to fight the external colonizers, so might as well stand together as one going forward into the future as well? Or was there something else that prompted some of these princely states to buy into the idea of a republic because by every stretch of, uh, you know, understanding or with all the data that we have, clearly they were doing well even as princely states. What was in it for them to be part of a republic? I think there are two, three factors. One is that for sure uh, that period India sees the birth and maturing of some of the greatest minds in human history. Mahalma Gandhi, Pandit Nehru, Sardar Patel, B.R. Ambedkar, etc., etc., etc. It's almost a collection of geniuses. Hmm. So they were truly inspirational figures and they articulated the idea of republic and democracy in such uh, appealing manner hmm. that many of the rulers and their divans fell for it. And hmm. and they're almost, uh, uh, yeah, they, they were almost captivated by that idea. Hmm. Second, do not forget the fact that the princely states ever since East India Company came in and began to expand and then British Empire took over. It's not that princely states were completely free. Hmm. They were uh, vassals, right? Okay. Basically, they were signing in all kinds of agreements. Uh, it was a uh, British Empire which decided who the next ruler should be. He would remove the rulers if they don't like them. Like hmm. Holker's father was removed, was to remove, step down. Uh, so it was at the whims and fancies of the British Empire that uh, princely states were. Hmm. Except for the internal administrative purposes, even there, the 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 princely the the empire had sent uh, residents, right, hmm. who were like the watchers and advisors. Right. So it is not that the so so many of the rulers uh, resented the fact that they were being suppressed or they were being choked by the British control. Hmm. So that's also another factor why they were appealing and they were more excited by the idea of uh, republic. the republic. Hmm. There is a third factor, and which is that one we must actually celebrate and talk more about, which is that for centuries, India had become a very unique lands landscape, uh, thanks to a lot of factors, including our geographical location, migration, yeah, the invasions, uh, missionaries, all kinds of things, that we had become a very complex society where Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, everyone co cohabited. Hmm. And the power of living together, celebrating the diversity was very appealing to the enlightened minds of many of the rulers. Mm -hmm. And and many of them, like Akbar, began to emphasize and uh, further spread that message and celebrate that message. Mm -hmm. For all of them, the idea of India, a republic, a secular republic, became far more appealing than even becoming, remaining an independent kingdom mm -hmm. or joining a religion-based uh, uh, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Josie, I'm thinking we'll take a small little break over here and let our listeners wrap their heads around that idea of India. We'll be back. Uh, stay with us on Episode 6 of The India Project with Josie Joseph. Coming up on the other side of the break. 84,000 Japanese troops poured into India from Burma in March 1944. With the Indian National Army, they aimed to take Imphal and then move west to march on Delhi. Let us say there are 20 mangoes. I know it's 20 because I'm counting in base 10. But he was counting in base 9. I would say I have two two mangoes. What does that mean? I have 
टू इंटू नाइन प्लस टू मैंगोस मैंगोस बट इफ यू आर एन इंडियन दैट्स हाउ यू से टू इन बेस टेन आई हैव टू टू मैंगोस It's a math 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 world with Divakaran and Shraddha. Out now, only on Radio Azim Premji University. The Northeast that forms an entire episode. I wanted to understand why it was important to include Hyderi and uh, what transpired in the Northeast. to complete our understanding of the events that led to the 15th of august 1947 i do understand that the northeast was of strategic importance but i think uh, other than that are there any other points that you would like to bring up uh, if i had not included northeast i would have been falling into the same trap that many of our writers and policy makers have fallen to mm. so take the last 100 years of indian subcontinent or take the world for that matter one of the greatest battles that decided the fate of the world hmm. whether it is the fascist japan japanese german italian axis uh, who is going to rule the world or is it democratic values was actually largely decided in the hills of northeast hmm. when the japanese force and the british fought 84000 japanese troops poured into india from burma in march 1944 With the Indian National Army, they aimed to take Imphal and then move west to march on Delhi. They simultaneously attacked Kohima, a hill garrison on the road to the railway at Dimapur. The Japanese had expected their opponents to quickly surrender. They didn't. The troops had travelled light, expecting to plunder Allied stores when they defeated them. The gamble. didn't pay off instead the japanese fought on sick and starving by contrast the allies enjoyed control of the skies and their supplies the troops in imphal were all supplied by air the air battle of imphal was as much as important as the battle on land the japanese supply lines were overstretched nothing got to them by land or air their plight was most acute at Kohima it was the monsoon the leeches the the malaria they were reduced in the end to boiling grass in water and that was their sustenance the commander was forced to do what no japanese commander had ever done he withdrew his troops you look at the last 75 years of india its biggest military humiliation happened in the northeast largely right so if we don't make the effort to understanding the strategic importance of that region and the diversity of the region then we are being ignorant we are not we are not really understanding the idea of india and uh, it breaks it should break our hearts to see that uh, the army that was sent into suppress the naga rebellion is still there and i don't think anywhere in the world uh, a military of a democratic country has stayed on in domestic security duties for so, such a long time uh, you know statistically uh, after second world war the average lifespan of an insurgency has been 8 to 10 12 years but look at uh, us and that that speaks volumes about the ignorance of the political leaders and policy makers in new delhi about northeast how deliberately they ignore it and their 
lack of will and the ability to solve the issues and and bring the people together and and celebrate the diversity hmm right so just like the northeast right i'm sure there are others that uh, you thought i mean northeast you thought prudent to include but i'm sure there are others who are also interesting interesting stories of princely states that don't make the cut but i'm sure our listeners would be curious to know for example what happened uh, to jammu and kashmir um we know we've read probably one of the most documented stories of what really happened on account of how it still um, has something to do with our reality today uh so some of these other parallel stories if you could just touch upon for a little bit would be good for us to complete the picture see among all the princely states i think the the one who had the capability and the financial muscle power and the global reach to secure his independence was nizam and hyderabad was in the heart of india uh, if they had remained independent should have looked like somebody pierced a knife deep into india's heart and you know took out that hard part so he had challenges obviously he was landlocked by india but he was not a small princely state he was big really big he was then the richest guy in the world he had his own airline he had his own military capabilities and he had some of the world's best advisors to advise him uh, and very strangely he had two things which were deadly one that though muslims were a minority in hyderabad his administration was packed with uh, muslims uh, so the and and then there was a militia that was fully loyal to him so he was sitting pretty good and uh, he also enjoyed uh, great rapport and support in london and among the conservative uh, political class there as august begins what we see is that uh, he is stepping up his game he is sending emissaries to karachi and mind you because he has got his own aircraft he doesn't need to bother about india so he's flying in and out his emissaries he has mungton who is a british legendary lawyer who is a friends of viceroy mountbatten to winston churchill and others uh he's also sending he also sends his uh, commander of his military forces by air abroad uh the suspicion was that the commander was going to switzerland to buy weapons for the military so despite all the efforts by viceroy and uh, all kinds of noises being made by others nizam doesn't move and nizam as you know after viceroy announced the plan to partition india on june 3 Nizam, alongside Travancore, Nizam is one of the early ones to issue a firman about his independence. Hmm, a firman, which, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, refers to a decree or an edict in Urdu. Uh, yeah, continue, continue, Josie. Uh, all the Mountbatten's efforts after that, through July, early August, nothing works, and by finally on 14th of August, Nizam sends a telegram to Delhi to Viceroy saying that. i'm not going to sign the instrument of accession hmm now let's come to kashmir for a bit over here josie because interesting that after the british left the indian subcontinent metaphorically speaking on the 14th of august 1947 one hears that the princely state of jammu and kashmir had remained independent for some 70 plus days so tell us the position of that princely state around the time that all of this was happening kashmir is actually very interesting both Nehru and Gandhi through the summer are quite obsessed about Kashmir. Nehru is very emotional about it. Gandhi is also because uh, Sheikh Abdullah, one of the most popular leaders and their one of their favorites, he is in jail, and uh, the the ruler and his 
Prime Diwan, Prime Minister. They're trying to stir up communal tensions and uh, there is disquiet. So Nehru says he wants to go to Kashmir. Gandhi says he would like to go to Kashmir to prepare for Nehru's trip. So Mountbatten realized it's going to be tricky. So he one day calls a meeting of Nehru, Gandhi, Patel and himself. So four of them meet. And Patel finally says, actually, Gandhi going is a lesser of the evil. And so instead of Nehru, Gandhi goes where Raval Pindi. And uh, he is received by Sheikh Abdullah's wife and a group of women. And Gandhi, respecting the ruler's order, not to have any public meetings, etc. He doesn't hold any public prayer meetings or anything. But they do hold prayer meetings, but not make, doesn't make any political statement or any large rallies or anything. And that Gandhi visit actually remains a very emotional point for Kashmiris even today. Many of them still talk about that. Again, Kashmir remains in the position that they will enter into treaty agreements with both sides and they're quiet. There is there is a very strange silence from there emanating and that silence will all erupt in the coming weeks mm. after the 15th of August. Right. So that was Kashmir. And uh, Josie, in an earlier episode, you'd mentioned Rasul Khanji of Junagar, the dog lover, right? We all remember that one. Uh, but yes, he was quite looking forward to this meeting with Jinnah. So that story is kind of incomplete in my head. Where was Junagar at this given point of time? So Junagar is strategically located again, very important seashore, very close to Pakistan. And uh, the State Department is in touch with the Junagar administration and uh, even up until 13th of August, they had sent a telegram asking them to send back the signed instrument of accession copy. And 14th evening, nobody knows what Junod has done. Mm. Only a day later, we would realize that they had joined Pakistan already by the 11th or the 12th of August. So, Josie, the picture that I'm getting right now is that of the princely states, uh, main players, not so main players, etc. And where they stand. And we are already somewhere near the 14th of August, 1947. And what's troubling to my ears is that we still don't have a complete country. We still have a lot of people who haven't yet bought into the idea of a republic, which means balkanization is quite a real threat. Um, in light of that, let's look at the other point of view. The States Committee had a huge role in uh, moving us every day towards, uh, you know, being a nation, an independent nation. So tell us about really what happened within the States Committee. How was it formed? You've given us some perspective, but uh, to understand these heroes or this particular hero in the name of the States Committee would be important. The political department, which is a department of the British Empire, was officially coming to an end with the end of British Empire. So States Department... By just appointing Patel as a minister and Menon as secretary, the department was not shaping, taking shape. Mm -hmm. It has to be a headquarters in Delhi with offices across India. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a massive network to emerge. So what they did was, uh, they started identifying key officials who could man uh, this place. And the first person that they identified was C.C. Deshai. Mm -hmm was a classmate of Subhash Sindra Bose in Cambridge mm -hmm. and who was in ICS. He was the uh, chairman of the tariff board in uh, Bombay. He wasn't very keen to move because he was having a good life and happy life there. But Patel forced him to come and uh, as you see in the last, in the run-up to independence and later, Deshai becomes the key anchoring figure of the State Department. Mm -hmm. While Patel and Menor are talking to the rulers and running around and uh, Menon is traveling a lot after independence. It's Deshai who is the anchoring 
position there. Hmm. Joining him is M N Bhuj. M N Bhuj was also an ICS officer. He was in Punjab as civil supply secretary when the partition chaos are beginning. So he doesn't come till August tenth, and he comes by tenth and and immediately gets down to the task, especially of the Western Indian region, hmm. where as you know, not just uh, all these big princely states, there are also many hundreds of unattached states, smaller ones. But when they asked for Bush to come and join in July, he couldn't come, uh, and they agreed with the argument about Punjab. So they identified. Uh, another official from the political department called Bane Singh ji and he is now sent to Rajkot where he is setting up office and talking to all the people getting the instrument of accession signed uh, then there is a group of people who are joining the headquarters many of them are from the political department but shifting this side hmm. so indian junior officials who are working in political department are mostly joining the states department mm-hmm. but the fact is also that all the files of the political department which were not destroyed and which were not handed over to states department hmm. which means the files that contain the family histories their you know shenanigans and uh, the madness and all kinds of conspiracies in the family those files were actually handed over to british high commission hmm. in delhi which sent it to uk and years later it was handed over to india we believe all of it but uh, so states department is a network hmm. that is operating that has to operate across india mm-hmm. but there is one providence that is happening in 47 because of this entire um, you know this entire josh about free independence uh, that's coming uh, we have a network of diwans in many of these princely states who are very very committed to the idea of independent india sardar k m panikkar in jaipur b l mitter in baroda etc and of them one of them is very interesting uh, mn venkatachar he is in jodhpur so his ruler has a last minute change of heart on the by the first week of august hmm. uh, via mumbai he lands in delhi and nawab of bopal takes him to jinnah and jinnah offers him a blank check hmm. and says that you declare independence or whatever uh, it's the 6th of august we have not is meeting jinnan by the 8th of august hmm. venkatachar is writing to delhi secretly saying that you know my role is doing this hmm. when gaikwad is planning uh, having second thoughts in baroda hmm. sitting in mumbai with uh, M- advice of mr jayakar the lawyer bl mitter is reporting it to patel hmm. so does somebody in nizam's uh, administration hmm. there is a very uh, courageous official there who starts who has direct access to nizam and is involved in the running of the administration who starts sending out letters to uh, delhi to almost give real time update about what the nizam and gang are planning mm. so that network of officials across india becomes and and we must not forget haidari in uh, assam because he is actually the governor of the assam province mm. he is a british appointed official but he steps up to the momentum situation and on his own he goes out so that network actually helps in many ways state department to take its time to grow if not for that net, that informal network of this very uh, brilliant powerful people committed to the idea of india we may not have it. the balkanization would have been further strengthened 
Now I think I feel a bit better with respect to my understanding of the key players uh, with respect to that story of the princely states and their signing up, the states committee. That was a very important component. You need to talk about them and you talk about the heroes of our story indeed. You can't really entirely call uh, the princely states the villains of the story, but certainly, you know, there was some resistance from several quarters, which led to a very real possibility of balkanization. And that's where we are at this particular point of time. Now, the next episode, we're going to go into the 14th morning and see what really happened in the hours before Nehru's historic speech. So we'll see you next on the 14th of August, 1947. Make sure you check out the show notes where we share the show resources and acknowledgements and don't forget to subscribe or follow our channel for future episodes. On the next episode. You're telling me that on the 14th, right until 9pm, we don't even have a full country the way we imagine it in our heads today. The session begins with the singing of Vandaya uh, Mataram. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. You're listening to Radio Azim Premji University.